found it interesting is that a lot of people, they go into managing, whether it's a business, whether it's real estate, whatever. And the first thing they want to do is cut costs because costs are, it's like a sugar high, right? You cut it, you feel the great effect right now and you feel your profit is going up and you're like, wow, I did a great job, right? Cut this thing, right? Well, the problem is you can't, it's that saying, right? You can't cut your way to prosperity. Like you can't just save your way to prosperity, right? That it doesn't happen. You'll have to be saving for the next 2000 years. So what you have to do is focus on the top line first. Now, it doesn't mean you ignore your expenses, but top line is where you get, which is revenue, is where you get the bulk of any gains that you are going to get in any business, whether it's real estate, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's private equity, health, whatever. So you got to focus on the top line. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be joined by my friend Omar Khan today. Wow, today's episode is action-packed, is value-packed. It is filled with applicable insights that you can apply to your real estate investment portfolio immediately. And I'm telling you, Omar is one of the best of the best. He is extremely intelligent. He is extremely passionate. He's extremely witty, funny. And by the way, I call him the best dressed man in multifamily. Uh, he's looking good. If you are watching today's episode, you'll see that. And you'll also get to see some of the tools that he's utilizing in his portfolio. But today's episode is jam packed with tremendous value. Today, you're going to learn about asset management and taking things to the next level in terms of your execution, how you can turn a good investment to a great investment or a phenomenal investment. Also, how you can really make sure an investment is sound rather than one that loses. And by the way, that happens. You know, I mean, there's this is not all sunshine and butterflies and rainbows and all those beautiful things. I mean, this can be a very challenging business at times unless you apply some of the principles that we talked about today. You're also going to learn about how Omar is financing deals in today's environment, which is vastly different than it was six months ago, especially 12 months ago. And it's always going to be in flux. So I think a lot of the stuff that we talked about is extremely applicable to today's environment, but it's also evergreen because guess what? Capital markets are always changing. And so I think you're going to learn a lot from today's episode. And I think it will be extremely valuable for you today. And as you move forward as a real estate investor, whether you are a sponsor or passive investor, I think this is a critical episode. Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and entrepreneur. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. I'm telling you, we're definitely raising the bar today. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about the mind expansion that we can step into when we steal shamelessly and improve from some of the best in the business, some of the best in the world. And that's why we speak with world-class investors, people like Omar Khan. I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. If it's your first time joining us and listening or watching Elevate Podcast, I am so excited and thankful to have the opportunity to pour into your cup today. And by the way, let's build a relationship together. Let's build a long-term relationship. So I invite you to check out the library of 270 plus episodes that we have put out for you. If you've been here before, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again. And by the way, if it's your first time, if you've been here for 200, 300 times, I just want to invite you to pay the fee. The fee is to pay it forward. Share this episode with a friend, grab the link. All you have to do, by the way, if you're listening to Apple Podcasts, there's three 
buttons or three dots in the right hand corner all you got to do is hit that and hit the share icon and you can send it in a text message email social media whatever it's very very easy to do and it's extremely helpful for us as we continue to build our community and build this tribe and add value to more people the only way that we're going to be able to continue to do that is if you continue to share so i just want to thank you in advance for doing that by the way otherwise it's 100 for free also if you have not done so already please either like subscribe, rate, and review, uh, whether you're watching on YouTube, whether you're listening on Apple or Spotify or wherever, please uh, give us a rating and review. It's extremely helpful. And also, we want to know your feedback. I want to know what are you loving about Elevate? What do you want to hear more of? Um, what is it that has changed your life or your investing experience as a result of engaging in this community? You have the opportunity of never stopping your growth. And that's what we're all about here. It's about continuous expansion. It's about growing your mindset. It's about exploring the limitations that you feel like you owned. And maybe you have owned them subconsciously. What we're here to do is we're here to explode those. We're here to blast through those. We're here to remove those. We're here to set a new watermark for what's possible in your life. Obviously, real estate is a vehicle towards creating outcomes that you want in your life. Today is extremely tactical and strategic in terms of optimizing revenue minimizing expenses where appropriate. Obviously, sometimes you can invest in further prosperity through maybe not minimizing your expenses. So there's a big, big nugget there that Omar drops in the middle of this episode. So I definitely want you to listen for that and think about how you're applying that to your personal life and to your portfolio, because that is a critical, critical component. But I do digress just a bit there. Today's episode is extremely valuable. It can make or save you millions of dollars. I'm, I'm not not just giving you conjecture there. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that. I do want to introduce you to Omar Khan, who was, by the way, he was a guest on episode 195. So this is the second time appearing on Elevate. Episode 195 is using real estate investments as a vehicle to live your best life. And by the way, that's what we were just talking about. So definitely go check out that episode, learn more about Omar's story, his background, and how he utilizes real estate investments to live his best life and how he offers that opportunity to others as well in a collaboration. And also, as a result of that, I want to give you sort of an insight on Omar. He is a CFA charter holder. He has 10 years of investing experience across real estate and commodities. He advised over $3.7 billion of capital financing and M&A transactions. He's syndicated large multi-million dollar deals across the U.S. And he indicates some of those markets in our episode today that he has syndicated in, that he's active in now. He has advised high net worth advisors and entrepreneurs on real estate portfolio allocations. He's a global citizen. He's lived in Dubai, Toronto, Calgary, Dallas, and he is one of the greatest people that I know in the space, somebody that I've come to strongly appreciate, someone that is extremely sharp and extremely intelligent, someone who is not satisfied with average. So there's a lot of clues that you can take today. So let Omar rub off on you today. What is it that you want to take from this episode? Set the intention now. What is it that you want to learn from today's episode? Let's go get it. Without further ado, please enjoy this fantastic discussion with Omar Khan. Omar Khan, back on Elevate. Welcome back, my friend. How you doing? Thank you so much. Uh, I think the last time we chatted, you were just about to have your babies, right? That's exactly. I think it is right, man. It's crazy how much how much time has passed and how much has changed. Yeah, we exchanged emails, but I said talking over a podcast, basically, right? Well, of course. And I was telling you right before the show, and you you rightfully acknowledge this, a very low bar, but you are the best dressed man in multifamily. How does that make you feel? Hey, man, I always feel good to be the tallest midget. 
<laughs> and if you're not subscribed to Omar's newsletter, you must do so because he's the best writer in multifamily. And that I think is it's probably still a low bar, but you've well crossed that bar. So, uh, man, I give a plug real quick as to where folks can get on your email list. Thank you for that. First of all, Tyler, you can join my mailing list by visiting my website, boardwalkwealth.com. That's B-O-A-R-D walkwealth.com. The form is right on the homepage. I mean, seriously, you cannot miss it. And if you join now, uh, I'll also give you access to my hidden mobile app. We don't talk about that publicly. Uh, with over nine hours of free passive investing courses. Again, not a guru. Don't charge for this stuff. So again, that's at boardwalkwealth.com. Look, I guarantee you're going to get value from this just because, I mean, you bring tremendous clarity to chaos. I mean, there's constantly, you know, the market is constantly in flux. There's constantly movers, you know, whether it's in the capital markets, whether it's in just the actual assets themselves and how, you know, investors are interacting with those data points. But you bring clarity to that. So I guarantee folks who get engaged with you or learn more about sort of your dialogue are going to walk away with value. So I genuinely mean that there's nothing in that for me. There's nothing in that for you. And and uh, so I just want to recognize that. I want to recognize you. I want to invite the listeners to engage with I'll you. I'll slip you the $100 bill right after this podcast. Hey, there we go. That might not go nearly as far as it did uh, two years ago. Uh, it was funny. Actually, <laughs> I was a friend of mine. He's not really in this business. He's not super plugged into the space, but it was funny. He posted something on Instagram the other day. He was at an airport and he posted a picture of a cocktail and he said, Hey, delicious cocktail, but this inflation has got to go. This thing was $20. And I, I just thought it was funny. I chuckled to myself. This inflation has got to go comment. And you know, it's a, you know, that hundred dollar bill that you're slipping to me under the table. It's not oh, going to go nearly hey, as far. Dude, you, you say that I was actually talking to one of my team members, right? We are very lucky. Like as a household, we make a very decent living, right? So a lot of this talk about inflation I mean, yeah, it affects us, but not really on a day-to-day basis. And we're very grateful for that privilege, right? Because we know that's not the case with everyone, right? But just literally less than two weeks ago, I use Instacart because I'm lazy. I just want to food delivered to me, right? Or groceries delivered to me. And I love eating steak, obviously. It was very shocking that I think it was I, my wife and I both, because we both use the same app, but different phones, right? And we both somehow said to each other at the same time when we were filling up our grocery cart, wow, prices have really gone up. Now, we didn't know which price had gone up. Because again, very grateful, very privileged that, again, it's a weekly grocery thing. So it's not the end of the world. But my point is, even we were looking at it. A lot of times I think, okay, we're in such a privileged position. So what about the average American? I mean, that's going to be a real pain in the ass, especially especially if you're an average household, you got two kids, you're making $60,000 a year. I mean, that is a significant chunk out of your whatever meager income you're making, basically. No question about it. I had an investor send me a New York Times article earlier this week. It was either earlier this week or last week. And it was about, hey, you know, let's let's be aware of this. Let's you know, I want to hear your thoughts on this. And basically what it talked about was, hey, inflation cuts both ways. I know as investors over the past several years, inflation has been a tailwind to to many regards in terms of rent growth, asset valuation, all those kind of things. So it's it's been great for many owners. But in many many respects. Obviously, we recognize that inflation cuts both ways, not only from an operational standpoint, but individuals who are creating, growing, or, you know, even optimizing sort of their income. And to your point, I think everybody's feeling that. And so let's kind of get the conversation going with regard to multifamily sponsorship and just real estate investment and so forth in terms of today's landscape. I mean, obviously, the rise in interest rates has been a function of inflationary environment. Let's kind of start there, man, because financing deals has changed so drastically over the past four or five, six, 
six months. And I mean, I've never seen anything like it in terms of the rapid rate of increase of interest rates. So talk to me a little bit about sort of the difference that you're seeing today in terms of financing those deals that you're seeing today versus what you saw called six months ago. Before I start with that, right, I remember I was talking to somebody, actually it was on a podcast, but a couple of webinars also three, four years ago. Uh, I said, look, right now buying real estate is basically like a levered bet on the interest rate being low. It's a levered bet, basically, because if you feel the interest rate is low, just lever this thing up as much as possible because whatever, right? You'll be fine. But like you said, it cuts the other way as well. So leverage is really good when it works for you, but when the tide turns, it can be a real pain in the butt, right? So what's happening now basically is, and we're seeing this in our markets, Atlanta, Florida, Texas, and I'm sure you're seeing it in your markets as well. Like even today, for instance, I was following up on a couple of deals that, I mean, were in my deals, uh, whatever, folder inbox thing, right? And I hadn't really heard anything about it. So I just followed up with three, four deals last night and I got a reply today. Deals that they were saying, and again, this is aspirational pricing, right? 30, 31 million, 35 million. Those same guys are super open to transact at 27 million, 28 million. I mean, if you think about it, that's a big chunk. Like one of my deals, Brighton Farms in Atlanta, we just bad timing. We took it out in March of this year publicly, right? And that's around the time when rates started rising. But we did know that, look, even if rates rose, we did the math, even if rates rose 200 basis points, we would still be able to refinance. So we're like, okay, let's take this gamble. Let's figure it out. And we were expecting whatever price we were expecting, the offers we were getting even at the start around April or so were about seven to 10% less than we were expecting. So we just took it to the secondary market uh, agencies. We got it refinanced. We returned about close to 50% of investors' capital back in about a year and a half. But we were in a position where for us, we could do both things, right? So we weren't four sellers. But now, you can't just go to the bridge market. I mean, today I was actually reading a post on LinkedIn about he's a reasonably successful lawyer, and he was giving this breaking news update that, hey, you know, his clients that are using bridge debt are getting retraded. And I was like, dude, where have you been, man? This thing has been happening since March. How did you just suddenly find out about this? So right now, the bridge market basically is for the lack of a better word, just done. And the reason for that is very simple. Look, if you're a bridge lender, what you do is you are basically, let's assume you raised 100, I'm grossly oversimplifying this, right? You raise $100 million to lend out. You can get money amplified at 0.5%. You lend it out at 4% and barring some fees and whatever, you'll keep the spread. It's like it's like a bank, right? You keep the spread. Well, the whole purpose there is if you raise 100 million, you don't just issue out 100 million of loans and then you're done. What you do is you issue out 100 million dollars of loans, you package them, you sell it forward. Now you get money again, say $100 million again, you sell those loans, package them, take the fees, sell it forward, right? So all you're doing is taking fees, fees, fees. It's like a bank. You're, you might have raised $100 million, but you've lent out, say, a billion or two billion or whatever your distribution channel is. Now, the reason why bridge lenders would do that earlier is because they could sell it forward right? They could sell it into the secondary market as a CLO. Well, that market basically has collapsed because the same level of interest rate uncertainty that you, you and I feel, our investors feel, okay, where are interest rates really going? The people that are buying CLOs, they are also saying the exact same thing. Look, I'll buy this 4 or 5% coupon from you, but the forward curve says it's going to be 7%. So why would I buy it off of you, right? Or if I do buy it off of you, it's like simple barn math, right? Interest rates go up, value price goes down. Interest rate go down, price goes up, right? So they say, okay, I'll buy $100 million off of you for $75 million, right? Now, if you're a bridge lender, you're caught between a rock and a hard place because your entire business model was to go sell it, sell it, package it, sell it, package it, sell it. 
You can't do that. So for all intents and purposes, again, gross oversimplification, you've only got two big games in town, three really. Maybe life insurance, if you can go down that path, right? But that kind of depends, right? Then you've got bank debt. The good thing about bank debt is some banks are still lending. A lot of them are out because, again, they feel the same interest rate. Um, bank debt, by and large, is either partial recourse or full recourse, right? Which means in case things go awry, they have recourse to your personal balance sheet. A lot of people, understandably, don't want to do that because what you don't want to do is work hard for 10, 20 years, and then two bad deals just take you away right? So that becomes an iffier option, right? Now, the only other game that's left, which is non-recourse predominantly, is the agency side. I know everybody's saying right now, oh, we should just get a fixed rate agency loan. And somehow that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And especially syndicators are saying that. But again, syndicators by and large are not terribly financially sophisticated, right? So they'll say, okay, I'll stem the bleeding right now. Okay. I'll just take a fixed rate loan because it's easy for me to market it. Well, the problem is, and as you read in my email, it's like Hotel California. You can check in anytime you like, but you can never leave because the syndicator model is, yeah, I tell everyone I'm going to hold it for five years, but I'm really going to fix it up and flip it in two or three years. Right. Well, you try to flip a fixed rate loan in two to five years, two to three years, even if rates are going up, even if your debt is accretive, you still have to pay yield maintenance penalties. Right. What happens there? You force the value up. You did a great job. You bought right. You managed right. And now when you're exiting, the lender takes all the money from you. So basically, you're left with no cash. So then the flip side becomes, well, do you take a floating rate loan? Because with the floating rate agency loan, you can get out by paying 1% penalty, one point on the loan after 12 months. The problem there is with the floating rate loan is that rates are going up. So your floating rate will go up. So now if the floating rate keeps going up, well, what price do you buy something at? Yeah, you're going to force value, raise rents, all of that stuff. But if you force value by 30%, but your, but your interest costs go up by 50%, well, you're in negative cash flow territory throughout. And then when you try to sell it in two years, what kind of idiot will buy it from you, right? For the price that you want it. So you're caught between a rock and a hard place. And this is why you're seeing that because financing is an issue. This is why prices are being materially affected. So therefore, people that can refinance, and just extend their debt out, right? They don't have to be stuck with a loan expiring next year or the year after they're doing that. And on deals, you can't do it. You're a forced seller, you've got to sell. But this is where smart operators like yourself, like ourselves, that's where we come in, right? We say, okay, Mr. Seller, you're not going to get the price you like, but I'm going to give you a price that I feel makes it worthwhile. And maybe you make money, but at least you don't lose money. So a lot of sellers are still taking a long time to get to this idea because, you know, people have told them their friends sold a property for 200000 a unit. Why can't I sell it for 200000 a unit, right? Without necessarily realizing this is the time where you minimize risk, not enhance your profit, basically. So that's a long way to long-winded way to answer. Well, this. there's a lot of follow-ups there. I mean, but one thing just to recognize, and we were talking about this yesterday, I mean, we're looking at obviously some price corrections in our markets as well. Some fairly significant, as you kind of alluded to. I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars, in some cases, 10, 15 plus percent price corrections from really what was historic highs. I mean, a few months ago, I mean, so yeah, but it was also aspirational pricing, right? Exactly. Somebody just throwing a price out there with, with basically the idea was screw you. Here's the price. You want to give it to me? Otherwise, buzz off. I got like 100 people. That script has flipped. And what's being constrained right now is loan to value. And as a result, your yields are being constrained. And the reason why that's being constrained is because the debt covered service ratios are limited. And because so, your interest rates have gone up. Exactly. So how are you handling that? I mean, you're talking about 
you know, floating rate, you're talking about fixed rate. Obviously there's limitation when it comes to fixed rate. And obviously if you're looking to exit in a few years, but there's also a significant risk and potential continued rate hikes. I mean, really, if you look at it in a historical context, perhaps we're nowhere near the end of that. Um, so how are you handling that in terms of your projections moving forward? Number one, I was not a religious person, but <laughs> I have started praying, number one. So, uh, that's my short answer. That's right? good. That's a good start. <laughs> not a religious person, but I've definitely started praying a lot. Right? The long answer is, look, the long answer basically is that we are still taking floating rate loans on acquisitions. Developments are separate. We take fixed rate loans there because that's a separate line of lending but we buy tighter rate caps. Now, the flip side to this is rate cap costs have exploded, right? I just finished refinancing on September 30th, a deal Equinox at night, right? For the second time in three years. So we did two refinances in three years. That's how good we were doing, right? And you're going to laugh at this. This time around for the rate cap, I had to pay 600 and something thousand dollars. Now you say, wow, that's a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. You know what I sold my rate cap that I bought last year for $25,000 for? I sold it for close to $900,000. I love it. <laughs> Again, that was unintentional. It's right. happened when you have a big enough portfolio. But what I'm trying to tell you is that these rate cap costs, I mean, we lucked out here, right? And these, but these rate cap costs are very significant, but you have to build it into your underwriting mm -hmm. because our model basically is, hey, mm -hmm. I need to have op operational flexibility. It's a lot more important to us than being stuck at something because the way a lot of times people don't really get it because they're like, well, the pain stops right now. I'm like, yeah, but you can either stop the pain now. And if you kick the can down the road, like we did inflation, it comes back many fold later on. Or you can take the pain up front, solve your problem in one go, and then not be concerned about this. Because what's really interesting to me is how a lot of real estate people have suddenly become macroeconomists. Suddenly they know how the Fed works. How, oh, first they are epidemiologists. They know how all the viruses work. <laughs> now they're Federal Reserve practitioners. And my point is, look, we all have to pick a lane because we're all good at something, right? Let's pick that lane and try to reduce the amount of noise coming from outside. So this means eliminating the variables that can affect us. So in our case, we're buying tighter rate caps. Now, what does that mean? Tighter rate caps mean that if the rate goes up by a little bit, we start getting paid by our counterparty. In exchange, we have to pay more money to buy it. It's like insurance, right? You buy an insurance with a lower deductible, your, your insurance is going to be higher. But the flip side to this is we're already building it into our underwriting. And if it works, then we go do the deal. And if it doesn't, we pass because there's no need to take that risk. There's no need to play with fire. Well, good for you for finding a rate cap uh, at a $600,000 mark because we've seen significantly higher than that even recently. And it sounds like maybe some of the rate caps that you're looking at, you're only mitigating that risk for maybe two years or so. I mean, are you looking at two-year strike? Because the three-year becomes exponentially higher. Yeah. And the volatility as per, at least for, from our analysis, what we're looking, it's all on the front end of the curve. There's not a lot of volatility on the back end. So post two, two and a half years, there's not a lot of volatility. It's all the front end. They front loaded all of the rate hikes, right? So it goes up and then it starts going. So up. do you place a lot of stock in that forward looking curve? Well, it's not just me who places that stock, right? Your lenders, your mm -hmm. rate cap, everybody's pricing off of that. Regardless of my personal opinions of what's going to happen, when your counterparties price off of it, your lenders price off of it, your rate cap providers price off of it, that's the price you get in the market because they're basing their models on that. Yeah, you can take a different opinion, but that's not going to affect the pricing they offer you. Yeah, that's fair. So if the CLO market has essentially closed for business and you're still going after floating rate debt for your acquisitions, where are you sourcing that? I mean, is this it local is, bin? Freddie and Fannie. Okay. 
agencies. Got it. Excellent. Well, it's that's lower leverage. It's much lower leverage, say mm-hmm. 55 to 65% in that range. But look, man, I mean, then the flip side to this also is, yeah, you raise a lot more money up front, but you also over-equitize the deal, right? So the chances of failure are much less also. Obviously, right? The the lower the leverage you have, I mean, you have to be, I mean, I don't want these to be famous last words, but <laughs> <laughs> you have to be a complete idiot to run a deal that's 60% leverage into the ground. <laughs> don't want these to be famous last words, but... I don't think it's going to be Omar, but uh, if it is, we will we will never forget this moment. <laughs> but I have to tell you, man, I mean, the way that you think about this is very helpful because, look, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. And to your point, I think everybody tries to step into various expertises that are outside of their lane. And so let's simplify it. And so when you think about simplifying it, and, and obviously some of the things that you just shared are extremely helpful, obviously, from a leverage standpoint, you're talking about significantly less leverage than previously. Now, to your point, you're talking about a significantly less risky position to be in. As a result, are you seeing compressed yields or are you seeing sort of an anticipation and an appetite from your investors for a lower yield as a result? Yes and no. Some investors obviously say this, but part of this is an education process. Part of this also is, look, it is congruent with what I have been saying four, five, six years now. So for instance, if I had said the exact opposite message, Right. My message obviously was, look, it's on a deal by deal basis. My message from the start has been it's on a deal. Number one, all of these things are on a deal by deal basis. Anybody who tells you this is one solution that fits every little problem you have in life is is either an idiot or they do not understand what they're talking about and they're leading you astray. So having that consistency in message, communicating a lot. Right. And I still feel I don't communicate enough. And reinforcing that message, this floating rate thing, I've been talking about for six, seven years now, mm-hmm. right? And I said, look, it's like that saying, right? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh, right? The market giveth and the market taketh. So the market was giving because you were getting no movement in your floating rate. So it was, a, it was essentially a freebie. But the fundamental of why you are doing it is because you need to have operational flexibility. As I was explaining to an investor, look, obviously, I'm not a magician. Right. I don't have a crystal ball that literally tells me what's going to happen because I wouldn't be in real estate. I'd be really rich and I would probably wouldn't be talking to you, as I told the guy. Right. Mm-hmm. I'd be really rich. I will not talk to anyone. So the bet that we are taking is obviously that we can follow a process. We have a good process. We're going to follow it in the markets that we're working in. We've got great experience. But we also have to sandbag and buy insurance, right? We all buy insurance. And our insurance is that, for instance, we get into a deal for whatever reason, either we are unable to operate it at our usual standard, the market doesn't cooperate, or any certain set of circumstances happen where we don't get to where we want to go. What we don't want to do at that time is to be stuck in a deal and die by a thousand cuts. What we want to do is cut our losses and move on. And while that is not the message that the average person gives, because everybody talks about making money, generational wealth, intergenerational wealth, quitting your W-2, whatever, right? The fact is a lot of times in times in markets, sometimes you have to maximize your profit. So you got to be a pig. But a lot of times you also have to minimize your losses, right? The message isn't very good, but sometimes it's better to take, say, a 5% loss than to take a 50% loss. So we are taking the bet that in case things don't go the way we have said, our process doesn't work, we can exit the deal. Now, as an investor, you're probably not going to like that outcome where you barely made any money, but it's better than losing all of your money. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you say that for three, four, five years, even during good times, during the sideways time, at least more people are apt to bite on the message that you're sending, right? Because there's congruency. And long term, obviously, success demands 
precise asset management, which is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today. And, and ultimately, whether you're in great times or sideways times, I mean, from a maximizing profit perspective or a minimizing losses perspective, asset management can be a central theme of that. And obviously, from an acquisition point of view, what we were just talking about is, all right, well, how are we structuring the capital stack? I mean, obviously, that goes without saying. But now let's dive into asset management. So talk to me about how strategic asset management can turn a good investment from a great investment or a good investment, you know, uh, rather than a poor investment. Yeah, or or a bad investment to an investment where you break even and you don't lose money. Because mm-hmm. that, that's also the case, right? Look, uh, one of the things that I've always found it interesting is that a lot of people, they go into managing, whether it's a business, whether it's real estate, whatever. And the first thing they want to do is cut costs because costs are, it's like a sugar high, right? You cut it, you feel the great effect right now and you feel your profit is going up. You're like, wow, I did a great job, right? Cut this thing, right? Well, the problem is you can't, it's that saying, right? You can't cut your way to prosperity. Like you can't just save your way to prosperity, right? That that doesn't happen. You'll have to be saving for the next 2000 years. So what you have to do is focus on the top line first. Now, it doesn't mean you ignore your expenses, but top line is where you get, which is revenue, is where you get the bulk of any gains that you are going to get in any business, whether it's real estate, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's private equity, health, whatever. So you got to focus on the top line. And a lot of folk people don't focus on the top line because a, it takes a little while for those effects to materialize. Think about your value-add projects, our value-add projects, right? You renovate, say, 50% of the units in year one, but really the effects, the combined effects of all of these things, you really see by year one and a half or two. It's not an instant hit. But during the process, you know you've got to suck it up and do it because on the other side, you look really pretty, right? So with revenue, it's a longer drawn out process. It also requires more creativity. It also requires more follow through because think about it this way. If you just tell your property manager, I want this thing done, and then you check out, right? You've got to realize most property managers, they're paid like forty-five, fifty, $55,000. And it's a thankless job, right? I mean, you're dealing with tenants that don't pay. Everybody's bitching and moaning at you. And on top of that, you got to deal with like CapEx. And most people always cut costs on payroll and property management. Mm-hmm. I have never seen an operator putting more people on the job. Right. Because they say, oh, my budget is going to go. Right. right? Every property manager wants to, wants you to do that, though. <laughs> no, but more. you have to realize there's a balance there. Right. Because right. look, if you cut to the bone, the problem becomes then your property manager can't focus on revenue generating activities because they're just so focused on plugging the holes as we speak. So following through becomes a big deal because a lot of guys and girls I see, they have these grand plans. We're going to move rents by $300. Great. You'll do it one, one month, two months. Then you're going to check out. Why is your property manager going to care? Because she already has 10 million things on her head. So having systems and effectively following up, but then also showing and training your team, how does these things work? So for instance, we have a lot of internal tools that we've designed, we use ourselves. Also, I'm a big copier. Anytime somebody does something, I just copy them, right? You have to do it. That's just the way it is. There is no shame in copying from intelligent people, Mm -hmm. right? But then on top of that, what we've been doing for a couple of years is we build these things up. Then we also train our people. And the easiest way that I found out training is not by telling them, is by also creating like tutorials, training videos. Hey, how do you do this? Why do you do this? And what is the process on how to do this? And the litmus test for us is then, for instance, hiring more and more people on our team that are just dealing with this task, but then creating very simple SOPs. Okay, for loss to lease, I want you to do these three things. Once these three things are done, then you can use your brain. But if you start using your brain in step one, we're going to stop having a conversation and we're going to go with somebody else. 
right? Yeah. But you have to follow through on that, right? With, for instance, what we do across our portfolio is we benchmark all the fees. Again, not a revolutionary concept. I wasn't the one that created this concept. But when you benchmark your fees and you have all your property managers once a quarter on all the calls, what you can then do is, okay, property one, similar demographics, these fees are being, say, 9% of my revenue. Property two is 15% of my revenue. Why is there such a big difference? So right now, for instance, what I'm seeing across my portfolio is other income is accounting for anywhere from about 10 to 15% of my total revenue. Right. So obviously the people that are at 15, they're doing really well, but we don't want them slacking. We want to keep pushing there. But the people that are at 10, we tell them, look, this property has a lot of times a similar demographics to your property. Right. Obviously, you make some adjustments for market. How are we pushing? What are we doing? Push, 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 push. But again, you can't do that if you don't show them data and you're not consistent in doing this. So these are just some small level items on the revenue side of the equation that you have to manage. Then what I also feel everyone should have is at least one person on their team that is really good at accounting. Because you have to realize when you're buying, say, a $20 million asset, it's akin to buying like a $20 million business, man. Like if you don't understand how your accounting is done, when to capitalize, when to expand, what is below the line, what's above the line, how do you deal with your lenders on an accounting technical basis, you're going to be behind the eight ball. It's just not going to work. You can't just wing it. You can't take a weekend course at some guru who's going to teach you accounting one-on-one, okay? It's like any other skill in life. You just have to take a couple of courses, open a textbook, and you learn. I mean, trust me, accounting is not the hardest skill in the world. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities, are seeking tax optimized cash flow with appreciation upside without all the hassles of management, you might might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcapllc.com. We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line, 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcapllc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. So actually, I want to go back to follow through because I think that is a key component. And you talked about some tips and some strategies, you know, training your people and building out SOPs and building out benchmarks. But let's talk about tracking. Let's talk about technology, maybe even some dashboards and maybe even some of those tools that you utilize with your team, not only to train, but communicate, share that sort of data and make sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of the directives to maximize revenue. And obviously, I'm sure we would take that further to managing expenses and so forth and optimizing the NOI. But talk to me about tools, technology, tracking for that follow through. If you allow me to screen, share a screen, I can share it as well in case somebody wants sure. to look yeah. at it. Yeah, and for the folks who are watching on YouTube, I'll go ahead and allow you to do that, Omar. Yeah, but before I start, I want to tell people, look, you have to create whatever you're creating. If you want your manager's input, you want your employee's input, you have to create it for the lowest common denominator, number one. Don't overly complicate it because a lot of people eventually want to show off how much knowledge they have and they make create the world's like most complicated mousetrap. And then the problem becomes it's such a pain in the ass to update that that eventually after a couple of months, nobody uses it. Nobody does it, right? So it has to be for the lowest common denominator. It has to be super easy to understand, super easy to implement, and you have to be able to do it week after week, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever you want to do it. So totally a simple agree. example, it's just simple loss to lease track, right? We do it every two weeks. It's one of my properties, Pines of Lanier. All this basically does is 
We take the rental, nothing complex, right? You got the rental from the property management software. Again, simple stuff, right? Unit, unit type, status, market, right? Then IPR is in place, right? What, what's the last release? Last release is really, really simple, right? I mean, when we got this asset, I think uh, the average rent was 720 in, in February, I think. And right, I'll get to it. The average rent right now is 947. So within five, what is it? Five months, yeah. Five, six, seven months, whatever it is. It's almost eight months now. Yeah, eight months, right? I mean, we pushed it 947 divided by 720. We pushed it 31%. This is in place rent. This is the average we're getting right now. Average is a different story. Just right off the top, we're getting two to 200, whatever, $220 or something like that. Extra per unit right now we're getting 220. But if you go 220 times, I don't know, 157, that's $34,000 of revenue we're getting extra per month. And this is, we're getting this right now. Don't worry about the loss to lease. We're going to get that, right? So you get the loss to lease, but you still see we have such a big opportunity here, right? You see all these, the render it is, it's color coded, right? Conditional formatting. These are all the fee incomes that you have over here, various types, like water, trash, community fees, months to month, right? So yeah, Omar, if I just, if I may just pause you just for a second, for folks who are just listening, we're looking at a master spread spreadsheet essentially that's got you know various tabs and you're you're starting with lost the lease right you've got a various metrics where you're measuring where you are for each unit perspective and so forth yeah so and this is why i say it's you always have to see what uh tyler is doing not just copy him blindly see what he's doing so let's go like this yeah because i'm just going to conditionally format it i just realized i needed something right see you're always figuring out things right even within things you use all the time Mm -hmm. Okay, what is the total amount of amenity fees that we do? Then again, this is all stuff that's already on your rental. This is nothing you have to think about. No fancy calculation you have to do. When did my lease begin? When did my lease end? Which basically the reason why I have these is, I'll explain it to you in a little while. Don't worry about it. This is the formula. And how long? What is the term? Term means how long have people been around here? Now, in my experience, what's typically happened when we've taken over property is that the longer the term, as in how long people have been living in some place, typically, not always, is a sign that the existing sponsor has not pushed rents enough. Now, there is no magic solution here, because right? Because then you'd say the term should be one month. There is no magic solution. It's it's you have to play it by ear. But typically, when you have big terms like 99s and all of this stuff, 149, this means people just haven't moved. Mm-hmm. And if they haven't moved, it can work one of two ways. Rents have not been pushed. But the other thing also is people have a lot of buy-in, which means it is harder for them to leave the community. So if you if they, if they you are actually pushing rents for the right reasons, right? I mean, the market rent is justified. Then oftentimes, for instance, people will just pay you the market rent. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's a similarity in terms of occupancy. If you look at a property that's 99% occupied, you've got an issue that you're not pushing rents. And it's a rule of thumb to pay attention to and say, well, yeah. wait a minute, we've got something that we can dig deeper into. Right. Again, this is all live data, by the way. This is not created. You can see this was 10.05. So what is it today? Oh, it's 10.05 today, right? <laughs> Who's creating this for you, Omar? Which which member? Uh, I created team? it myself. But again, the pro- and I created a training video on what I needed. Mm-hmm. But then every two weeks, my analyst updates it, right? Okay. Because I don't have to literally update it for every single instance. I just have to use this to analyze along with him. But I have to create the structure and processes and all of this stuff, right? And make sure it's implemented. Basically, we have our floor plans. We have our square footage. The count just, I mean, look, these are all stats here. But the biggest stat here is we see our penetration of various fees because we keep implementing new and new fees, right? So, and those fees are going to be, like if I implement it today, even by a 12 month period, I might only have 85% penetration. Mm-hmm. I have to follow this penetration because think about it this way. I can start at 10.05. I can go to 921, which was two weeks prior, and look at what my penetration numbers are. 
right to say, hey, are we making any progress here? Are we right? on track, off track? Are we on track? What are we doing? How can we do a better job? It tells you, okay, look, what is my market rent? What is my average rent? What is my loss to lease? So loss to lease is really my opportunity, basically to capture additional upside. Some other stats that I can put in, you don't have to put it in. It's completely up to you. What is my average term? Mm-hmm. term that we talked about, right? This is still very high. But we also got this property only like seven or eight months. So we're turning over. So we're still on revenue. All revenue efficiency, I can tell you, Tyler. If somebody nails revenue efficiencies, they have won 90% of the battle. As we win that battle, you obviously are still simultaneously working on expense optimization. So talk to me about your process there and what does that look like? So expense optimization, the process is very simple. We are basically, after doing so many deals, we have basically have all the data for our previous, for instance, deals. So number one, we're benchmarking all of our data. I love that. Payroll per unit, what is R&M per unit? Again, R&M is one of those things where it varies because it depends on what type of property you're buying, what vintage is it, maybe even if it's in vintage, if it was in a state of disrepair. That it's more of a rule of thumb where you kind of have to know your assets to kind of figure out, okay, something is this, something is this. There's a difference. Why does that difference exist, right? But turnover costs, as an example, for similar vintage, similar profile of assets should be very similar. Again, also, we have a similar level of finish across most of our properties. Barring class A's, right? The class B's and C's are somewhat similar. So we also know, okay, it's somewhat similar on what the, uh, what the my CapEx per interior unit, as an example. Mm-hmm. Admin, advertising would be somewhat similar. Also in advertising, what I found is, for instance, uh, what I've now realized is certain, for instance, properties of ours that are really good for traffic areas or areas where there's just not a lot of supply. We don't have to do a lot of advertising. I mean, we do advertising, but we don't use apartments.com a lot of times. But in certain areas where apartments.com is really big or Zillow, so like one property, Equinox at night that I was telling you, apartments.com isn't really that big of a deal in that market. But for whatever reason, Zillow is like freaking flood of leaves. We have apartments.com. We went to the lowest possible package, but on Zillow, we went to the highest possible package because it's all for traffic. Understanding those nuances, right, is very important. Then basically, ideally, once you have a big enough portfolio or you can get on your property manager's portfolio, getting on their insurance, oftentimes that reduces it. And then on the real estate taxes side, which is basically the biggest expense, fighting every single tax bill you get. Even if it's reasonable, you got to fight it. Because if you don't fight it next year, that becomes the base upon which all taxes are calculated going forward. Man, you read my mind. That's actually where I was going next is managing taxes and insurance. I mean, we've seen rapid rises, especially in insurance. I think we're seeing that in taxes, sort of a lagging indicator across the board property taxes are going up. So I guess sort of the rule of thumb that you're focusing on is fight it every year, you know, every, go go every after it. Yeah. And then in terms of insurance, it's look, there are opportunities to leverage a, you know, you know, sort of bulk discount through whether it's an umbrella policy through your portfolio yourself or your property manager, your third party. Yes, yes. But the thing also is insurance costs by and large across the country are going up significantly. So, so your benchmark that, is, that you had previously is shifting. Not, not only is it shifting, what you then have to do is rely on basically, like, for instance, I talked to a lot of guys, other owners. I mean, we're not competitors. We're another, of course, we're different assets, whatever. Hey, how much are you looking at? Or I have this problem. What do you think about it? Mm-hmm. You talk to your property managers as well. As an example, I'm on some, certain assets. I'm on my property manager saying certain assets are much better than the average asset that my property manager has. I'm not going to be there. And certain assets, not mine, but from other clients my property manager has, he's not going to bring on his umbrella policy because they're in crime-ridden areas. So the more bad stuff happens on those properties, his insurance rate is going to go up, right? So he doesn't want that. Because with insurance these days, it's just fighting a losing battle, man. So it's like we talked about, right? 
enhancing returns or minimizing losses. Yeah, with insurance, all we're trying to do is minimize the loss, man. Now, in terms of asset management, let's talk about managing those renovation schedules, you know, whether it's interior unit unit renovations, exterior amenity enhancements across the board. Talk to me about the optimal approach that you take towards managing renovation schedules. The optimal approach is meant to be a pain in the ass. (laughs) Continual follow up. follow through. The optimal approach is to be the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. Number one is to have multiple bids, ideally uh, for all um, projects that you sometimes it's not possible because you have to, especially in the last few years, you have to you have to balance speed with cost. Mm-hmm. So that's a big issue a lot of times. So some person might be more speedy, might cost more, versus somebody could be less speedy, but they cost less. So typically, in my opinion, I lean towards speed. Obviously, with the, there are rules, there are caveats to this thing, right? And there are certain boundaries to this thing. But speed is more important because every day we don't, a lot of times people just calculate, for instance, hey, what is my renovation cost, right? As a cost for renovating a unit. But what they're not taking into account is what is the lost revenue? What is the lost fee income? Like if I don't lease this unit out for a month, it's not just the cost to me, say the seven, ten thousand dollars I put to renovate the units. It's also the lost revenue, the lost rent, and the lost fees. So maybe those, those fees are like say fifteen hundred dollars, right? Rent and fees. So now if you upgraded something for eighty-five hundred dollars and your fees and rents are fifteen hundred dollars, you should account for it as ten thousand dollar cost, not a eighty-five hundred dollar cost, because one is an implicit cost and one is an explicit cost. So you have to account for the because there's an opportunity cost, right? And then, for instance, if somebody is giving you two thousand dollars extra on the per unit, as an example, but they're doing it in two days, versus some guy is going to give you two thousand dollars less, but do it in a week and in a month and a half. Well, how quickly can you recover that money, right? So a lot of people don't really do that. Then, for instance. So this is something where I've kind of shifted my thing on. For instance, lately, what I've been seeing is, you know, we had like, okay, we have to have X number of units renovated every month. Doesn't matter, come hell or high water, it's going to happen, right? But what I'm seeing a lot in my properties now, uh, because again, I'm in the major metros like Orlando's, Atlanta's, Jacksonville's, San Antonio's, right? What I'm seeing now is that because the market is so tight for renting, it's an interesting dichotomy that what's happened is that we have across the board, we have residents that tell us, hey, you know what? How about I just pay you the market rent? Don't come into my unit. I don't want to vacate. I don't want to, I don't want you renovating. Just worry about it. Just, just leave me alone. Just, I'll just sign it, give you the market rent and just screw off, right? And the thing there is basically that initially I thought this was a one-off thing. So we kind of monitored it, right? Because it's interesting. You don't want me to do anything. You want to pay more money. This seems like a win-win. What's the catch here? But I started seeing that more and more. So especially on that property whose lost lease tracker I was showing you, Pines of Lanier, we've seen that across the board. We have lots of people that have told us, we'll pay you the extra rent. Don't want to leave the unit. Don't touch my things. That means that all the money that you could have basically spent, now you have all that money. So now you can do even more strategic upgrades. Additionally, for instance, on certain properties where, for instance, we're like 95% on average occupied, but we want to go to 98. What we're doing is say, if we send the renewal letter out 90 days in advance, uh, three months in advance, four months in advance, we just might go in and talk to the resident and say, hey, here's a whatever small little thing, like less than say 750 or $500. They say, put a USB port or I need like this thing repaired. We'll just go repair that free of charge. Right. So it primes, it's like that sales taxes, right? Where you're priming your customer to be more acceptable to what you're going to give them. So when you do something nice, some people are going to abuse the system, but when you do something nice, your customer, in this case, your resident is more susceptible to a market rate hike, which I've been, which is very much versus you didn't do anything. You send the renewal letter and now they're like daggers drawn. 
So again, not an exact science because it's kind of hard to, it's not an exact science, you understand? It's But you have Absolutely. to monitor the situation and then act accordingly, basically. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be super involved and your communication has got to be extremely robust. You've got to be pivoting. You've got to be adapting constantly to terms of well, what are you what sort of feedback are you getting from subcontractors and what sort of pricing and timing and all of those different factors? And timing is a big issue. Timing is always in the past two years, even right now, timing is a big issue. Right. So that's why I said, you know, ideally I want three bids. But so, Omar, do you guys manage construction management in house or do you have a third party that you work with? It's partial, right? Right now, it's partial. We do a lot of it in-house. Again, the reason why it's, it's partial is because we have a big enough portfolio so we can benchmark and track, okay, paint is costing me this much. Mm-hmm. This thing. But you understand that is a financial metric of measuring things. Mm-hmm. There is a quality metric that we are getting better and better at with experience. And one of my big things for Q1 of next year is to basically hire a full-time construction manager because we it. are very good at managing our financial budgets. We're very good at performing on time ahead of schedule. But now for us, I feel to take it to the next level is managing the financial aspect, but then managing the scheduling, the operation and all of that aspect as well. A hundred percent, man. It's raising the bar and uh, take things to the next level. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot of coordination when it comes down to managing a large scale renovation project. Even one individual project can have many different moving parts. So I think that's wise. And at the end of the day, what we're talking about is implementation of the vision and the execution of the business plan. We come to, back to asset management. It's daily KPI tracking. It's training your team. It's managing. It's communicating. It's being a pain in the ass. But talk to me about sort of communicating that vision and the business plan to your team and seeing through the execution of that business plan. So it's not easy. It's uh, it's a work in progress. It's a forever work in progress, right? Number right. one. Number two, basically, thing is, I'm hiring more and more people as we go along and we continue to grow. So it's finding the right people, which is a complete pain in the ass again, because you can have somebody that's really talented, but doesn't have buy-in. Versus somebody who say not as experienced in this thing, but just a smart individual. Because look, we both know this is not the most complex activity in America happening right now. All you need is basically to be successful. Look, 90% of success in this field is merely just being organized and showing up on time. That's it. I mean, you know this, man. I mean, this is not the most complex field that we're doing. So if somebody's organized, they have common sense. That will go way, 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 way further than somebody that is really good, say, professionally, on paper at least, right, and their job, but organizationally, they don't keep to a schedule, they don't follow up, all of that sort of stuff. So it's finding the right people, number one. Number two, the process is very templated, as you've seen just with the loss to lease thing, right? Everything is a template because the idea here is that, look, we do this once, we kind of understand this, and the next time around, it's pretty much the exact same thing. Right. Because, again, we're in a little niche. Right. It's not like I'm doing offices and hotels and um, self-storage. These are all great niches. I'm in a niche. So I have to standardize or go towards standardizing as much of those processes as possible. So when my team does it two or three or four times, the fifth time, they basically take control more than I do. Right. So right now we're closing a deal in Atlanta. My asset manager, which I've trained since the start of this year, he's a very sharp guy to begin with. So it makes it really easy because it is standardized. He's worked with me in a couple of assets. Now he's handling all the grunt work with the property managers off basically where my budget has to be because I've done my own budgeting, right? 
but I want him to get there and tell me how he gets there. And if he can't get there, then give me good reasons why he can't get there because his opinion is also very important. Just because I say something doesn't mean it's a gospel. So finding those teams, but it's about congruency. It's like what we talked about the investor thing earlier. Dude, if you keep changing what you're doing, like your left one day, right one day, up one day, down one day, it creates a lot of confusion. In fact, my CEO, Eric, we're going to talk about this today, sent me this book from this guy, Jocko. He's some really famous guy, right? Yeah. Something in the Marines, right? Yeah, he looks like a cool guy, right? Where's his picture? Yeah, this guy over here. Jocko. He looks like a cool guy. Yeah, I don't know him, but I've heard his name somewhere. Anyways, Eric said, you should read this book, and then we should talk about it every like week when we have our thing. Interesting book. I've read the first two chapters. And again, his thing also is consistency. I mean, but you have to let your team take control because if you just show up and do everything, then your team isn't, your team can't do anything. And then when you go away, your team's going to collapse. For sure. And it's the servant leadership. It's showing up every day. It's communicating. It's do the hard things. It's pushing. It's it's supporting. It's giving the tools that, you know, folks need to be able to be successful. But I'd love to hear the difference in what you guys do in terms of, all right, well, in, for CF Capital, what we do, obviously, is when we identify an investment, obviously, we set the vision for that investment. We set the business plan. And what we do is we are looking out three, five, seven, ten years into the future. And we're saying, here's where we're going. And then we're reverse engineering that. Sorry, as a company or as an asset? Well, as a company and per assets. And I'm really talking about per assets because each individual asset has its own business plan. As you mentioned, you're acquiring a business. And so what we're doing is we're setting that future intention and we're getting clear on, well, what are we anticipating with the market and so forth? And we're reverse engineering that on an annual basis and a quarterly basis. And we're setting goals and we're allowing buy-in from our team, our property managers, our staff members and all that kind of stuff. How does that differ for you in terms of getting clarity from the team, getting buy-in, getting excited? excitement from the team? I think, look, that's a good question. Maybe I don't, are you there? Oh yeah, maybe I don't have the exact answer to this. For me, for instance, what I've set out is basically a goal of like what I, what we as a company need to do basically. But that goal is also dependent that if I don't find the right deals, we don't find the right deals. And I mean, we're not going to do them, right? So there is one aspect of the goal, which is, hey, we just want to do this. So one aspect is compensation-based because barring my one of my fundraisers and my controller, the rest of my team is full of guys. And it's like, bam, 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 right? They, they just look at the money part, right? Which is fine because that's just the way it is, right? So one aspect of this is compensation, but one aspect of this is also trial by error as in finding the right people. So the buy-in from the team, I think happens mostly at the start when we interview people and we tell them, look, obviously they tell, they look at us, we look at them. And the whole deal there is, look, you're, you're going to be given a lot of responsibility. There's going to be oversight, but you have to take responsibility. And after that, for instance, if we don't do a deal for, say, six months, right? The deal there is that I will float their paycheck. I, everybody gets a paycheck, right? And everybody's getting paid above market because I have, for one, have never understood that how do you expect loyalty from your employees if you pay them shit? Like you can't expect loyalty. You can't expect somebody to be overperforming and then you pay them like crap with an IOU of some future performance, which you may or may not. Yeah, you're not going to attract A players like that. So right? Omar, we're so almost out That's of time, it. but yeah. I do want to wrap up the discussion. I mean, obviously this has been very wide ranging. I just want to thank you again for this, but I want to ask you, what are you doing differently today versus what you did one year ago, two years ago? Um, obviously you're always raising the bar, but re regarding asset management in particular, is there anything that you would point to in particular? 
No, I think the bulk of the work is exactly the same. It's consistency over like years. Now, obviously there's refinements. Hey, you look at something, car comes into your head, you implement it across the board. But 90% of what we're doing, even in bad times and good times, is exactly the same. The bulk of it's my own money. I sign on the notes. So in the good times, the market's going up. I didn't do a lot of deals because I frankly didn't make any sense. It's just consistency, man. We had a little, we had a little sandbox. We have to play in that sandbox. And if the market's good, it's good. If the market's bad, it's bad. We're not going to deviate from that sandbox. We will course correct along the way, like financing changes, what type of return metrics you have to buy something changes. But the little sandbox is not going to change. Omar Khan, Boardwalk Wealth, the man, the myth, the legend. Thanks again for being on the show, my friend. Tell the listeners again where they can find you, where they can learn more about you. Yeah. So you can go to our website at boardwalkwealth.com. The form is right on the homepage. Really can't miss it, guys. <laughs> and if you join now, I'll give you access to my hidden mobile app with over nine hours plus of free passive investing courses. Again, that's at boardwalkwealth.com. All right, my friend, the greatest dressed man in multifamily. Again, Omar, thank you so much again for being on the show. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you. Bye for now. Elevate Nation, Omar Khan, diving deep with us today. If you are wanting to take your investing to the next level, today's episode was so important. And ultimately, it comes down to execution. I mean, yes, you can buy right, you can finance right. And, and obviously, those are critically important tasks. But ultimately, it comes down to asset management, comes down to execution, comes down to the boring basics, the consistency over time, the compound interest of that. There's so many tactics, tools, and strategies that we talked about in today's episode. So I want to encourage you to identify what are your top one, two, or three takeaways for your investment portfolio? What are you going to apply from today's episode? Is it tracking? Is it tools? Is it follow through? Is it the way that you're attracting the right team members? So on and so forth. What is it that you will be applying from today's episode? I want to encourage you to jot those down. I also want to encourage you to have a discussion with a friend, a colleague, a business partner, uh, someone that you'd like to do business with and talk through what you learned today. What was it that was not said? What was it that you are doing in your own asset management that you feel like should have been a part of today's discussion? What was it that is not working for you right now? What is it that is working super well that you want to double down on? Have a discussion. At the end of the day, that's how we anchor in our understanding. Also, by the way, repetition is the mother of all skill. Today was action-packed, value-packed. You definitely want to listen to this episode twice or three times. You're going to learn two or three or more times as much by doing so. By the way, uh, I just want to thank you so much for being a part of this this discussion, this episode, this community, Elevate Nation. I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to bring people like Omar Khan back into the fold. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to add value. I just want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with someone else. And until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.